Before I begin, I would just like to say I will be using slido.com again at the end with the hashtag HBSP. And so if you have any questions, uh, jot them down then and I will uh, ask, I will answer them at the end of the service. Now, Ella and I went on our honeymoon a few years ago. It was only a couple years ago. Um, and we went to New Zealand. And what we decided to do was to hire a camper van and travel around the south coast, south island of New Zealand. Now, we went down the west coast and we stopped at one of the glaciers, the Franz Joseph Glacier, and we decided to do a glacier hike. And the glacier hike takes about four hours to do. And there's a guide that comes along with you during the glacier hike. And uh, the guide is there for a couple reasons. First of all, uh, to help you make sure you don't get lost so you know where you're going. And second of all, the guide usually tells you information about New Zealand, about the glacier you're walking on, and also just about New Zealand in general, usually something to do with the geography of New Zealand. And this lady was our guide. And so we would hike up and we would stop and have a rest. And every once in a while, she would tell us a bit of information. And one of the pieces of information she told us was that New Zealand is actually on a fault line. And what that means is that because New Zealand is on a fault line, that it actually has quite large mountains. But not only does it have large mountains, it also has a lot of earthquakes. Now, these earthquakes can be quite small, but they can also be quite large. And every 100 years or so, there is a major earthquake, an event that is like a 10 on the Richter scale. It is catastrophic, and it can cause mass destruction. She explained to us that it had almost been 100 years since the last major earthquake. And so they were expecting one to occur any time now. The earthquake was imminent. And then she said these words. So that is something that we are all looking forward to. (laughs) Mass destruction from a catastrophic earthquake was something that they were all looking forward to. Now, Ella and I, we just looked at each other and we just laughed. We thought, how crazy is that? What a bizarre thing to say. Why would you say that you were looking forward to such a devastating, catastrophic event? Well, the same could be said today. We have learned in the past few weeks that 1 Peter is a book of encouragement. Peter is writing to these people who are in exile. They are on the margins of their society. 1 Peter is a book of encouragement to help those hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what we read in these verses may suggest otherwise. Look at me, uh, look with me at verse 1. It says, just as Christ suffered in the flesh, you also will suffer in the flesh. Or possibly verse 12, where it says, do not be surprised at the fiery trials as it comes upon you. And if these aren't enough, how about verse 18? If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Suffering fiery trials, the righteous scarcely saved, sorrows and insults. 
If Peter was here leading our tour today, he might also say, these things are things that we can all look forward to. So I think we need to pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word, that as we do, his true and perfect encouragement might be revealed. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to be open to your word, which is before us today. Thank you for the example we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to serve one another by the strength that you have given us. In your name we pray, amen. Now I have a question for you to think about through this sermon. The question is, what would it look like for the people living in 65 AD to whom Peter writes to take the word of God, apply it to their lives, and live out the gospel in their community? Remember, these people were under intense persecution and suffering as a result of their faith. They understood that following Christ meant living on the margins and being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Peter wants to encourage them in their suffering and to explain to them that their suffering is not without a purpose. God will use their suffering, and it will be used to bring him glory. So read with me chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Of God. Peter continues this idea that we are to follow in Christ's steps. As we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, we are to use his life and his death as as an example for the way that we should live. Previously, we have seen that Christ's life is an example for the way we should live. In the same way that God willed for Jesus to suffer, that we might be free, we also should be prepared that it might be God's will for us to suffer. Jesus, as an example for us to follow, is summed up really well in chapter 2. And I want to read it again. Would you turn to chapter 2, verse 21? Let's read this. Chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the passage we're reading today in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it summarizes exactly what he has been saying. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So also to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
Now, Peter is not saying that our suffering in the flesh will achieve our salvation or that our suffering will prevent us from sinning. Rather, he says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, when he says this, he's expecting us to remember what he has already said. And that is in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered in the flesh by bearing our sin and dying for them. When we suffer in the flesh, we die to our sins because Christ has brought us to God and made us alive in the Spirit. Peter writes that we are to cease from sin so that we can live the rest of our lives in the flesh, but no longer live for our human passions because we've already died to them. Instead, we live for the rest of our lives in the flesh for the will of God and for his glory. And this isn't something new. This is what Peter has been talking about in the previous two chapters. It's oftentimes helpful for us to look at other passages in the New Testament uh, that can clarify this even further. And so I'm going to read Romans uh, chapter 6, verses 6 to 8 to you now, where Paul explains this same idea. So this is from Romans 6, 6 to 8. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's Romans chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. And here Peter says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. No longer living for yourself, but dying to your human passions. And he warns us that as we do this, and as we no longer live like those around us, we will be maligned. That is, we will be criticized for not doing what everyone else does. This is the cost of following in Christ's steps. It's precisely what he says in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. And Peter actually gives us a greater insight to what this ridicule, what this criticism would look like in his second letter in 2 Peter. Listen to these words in 2 Peter about what he says about this maligning. It says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, 
All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The people who Peter was writing to have been hassled and they've been asked, where is the one who is coming? He said he would come again to judge, but he hasn't. Where is he? Where is your Messiah? And they would have also said, everything is continuing as it always has been. There's no difference now or before. What difference has Christ made? And it's the same as people today who suggest, surely, whether you believe or you don't, you still end up in the same place. Or, if your God is so good, why does he allow bad things to happen? Or, believe what you want. We all end up in the same place. Or, possibly, Jesus has come and gone, but really, Has anything changed? And I believe this is where Peter has great words of encouragement for us. In the next few verses, Peter argues against this maligning by encouraging us in three different ways. So firstly, the first way Peter does this is in verse 5 and 6. And he says that for those of you who believe, we will be judged and we will die in the flesh, but we will live in the spirit as God does. So fix your minds on things to come. The second thing he says in verse 7 to 11 is that the end of all things is at hand. And we can be assured of this because we have received gifts from God. So glorify God with your gifts. And the third thing he says from chapter, verse 12 onwards is the fiery trials that we face actually lead to blessing because the spirit of God rests upon you. This judgment you're facing now, this time of testing, is an indication that the end of all things is at hand. So trust your souls to a faithful creator. Peter says, do not fear these people. Do not fear them. Be encouraged, because those who malign you will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So let's look at these three ways Peter wants to encourage us more Um, in more detail. First of all, in verses 5 and 6, it says, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Our earthly bodies will not be the same as our spiritual bodies. Rather, We have a life waiting for us in the spirit. Our salvation is kept in heaven for us. And like I mentioned last week, Peter is not saying that the gospel was preached to the dead, as in the people who are physically dead. Rather, Christians who are dead now are alive in the spirit with God. The reason the gospel was preached to them, that is when they were alive, 
was so that they might hear the word of God, they might accept it, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, they might be born again. So when their earthly body dies, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they will continue to live, and that is live in the Spirit. And so be encouraged that the life we live in the flesh now is temporary, but our spiritual body is eternal. So fix your minds on the things to come. Now in verse 7 to 11, Peter makes his second point of encouragement. Read with me, starting from verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks, oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory dominion and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we live in the flesh now, we do not join the flood of debauchery which is prevalent in our culture. We are to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We use the gifts that God has given us so that in everything he may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And this is ultimately seen as we love one another earnestly. Now, these gifts that we have been given from God are from God's varied grace. And I would love to read again verse 10. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, the phrase God's varied grace is a great little gem especially for those of you amongst us who are more creatively minded. The word varied can also be translated multicolored or colorful. So what Peter wants us to understand is that God's varied grace is not limited to the few things that he's mentioned here, speaking oracles of God or serving, but rather God has gifted us in a colorful way. There is no limit to God's grace, just as there is no limit to the number of colors you can have. We should be encouraged by this, because seeing God's grace demonstrated in the ways he has colorfully gifted us, his people, reveals that the end of all things is at hand. So glorify God with your colorful gifts. Now, Ella has this uh, wacky ability to see numbers as colors. You can ask her a number, and she will tell you what color corresponds to this. So if you say the number two, she will say the number two is yellow. If you say the number four, she will say that the number four is blue. When I discovered this, um, let's call it a gifting, when I discovered this gift... 
I told my mom, and I said, Mom, do you see numbers as colors? And she said to me, don't be ridiculous. Numbers are numbers, and colors are colors. So for those of you out there who see numbers as numbers and colors as colors, I've also included some statistics to help us understand my next point. Read with me verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, it's no surprise to us that Christians have suffered throughout history. And last week, we looked at the fact that we may not necessarily go through fiery trials for our faith. We may not suffer like some of the brothers and sisters that suffer elsewhere. But it's important for us to realize that our experience here in Australia is not necessarily the norm. It is not necessarily what is experienced in other parts of the world. And it may not be for the same for us in the future. And that is why Peter is saying, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And so right now I would like to consider, I would like you to consider with me, the immense suffering in the Church of Africa. This is a snapshot of what Christians have been facing in the last 12 years in the country of Nigeria. In the last 12 years, 17,500 churches have been attacked. Just to put that into perspective, Australia only has 13,000 churches. In Nigeria, 17,500 churches have been attacked in the last 12 years. That is 1,458 churches each year, which is just under four churches every day. In the last 12 years, 18,500 Christians have been abducted. That is 1,542 every year, which is just over four Christians being abducted every day. In the last 12 years, 43,000 Christians have been killed. That is 3,583 Christians every year, which is 10 Christians every day. And that is only in the country of Nigeria, and that is only in the last 12 years. Now, like I said before, we may not face this type of persecution, but we do know that those people that Peter was writing to were going to face this type of persecution. And we can take great encouragement from their example. Let's read this again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, 
as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter says that we should not be surprised at the fiery trials because they are here to test us. Now, this isn't the first time that Peter has mentioned this. Look back with me at uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. It says in 1 Peter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what he is saying in chapter 4, verses 12 and onwards, is the same thing as what he said in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. These fiery trials, these, this testing of our faith, is what we must be prepared for. We must have the correct understanding of God's word and how we are to see these times of suffering. Otherwise, we will interpret them in the wrong way. And sadly, we see this too often today. Instead of understanding that we are suffering for the name of Christ, and because of it we are blessed, people say, What have I done in my life that was so bad that I needed to be punished? And they blame God and they turn away from him. We must have the right understanding of what our suffering means and that it is a refining of our faith. Now, the time of testing is also alluded to in 4, verse 17 and 18, where Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So we need to be careful, for the time of judgment is to begin at the household of God. That is, the time of judgment begins with us. We are the household of God. We have been built up into his spiritual house. But our judgment is different from those who do not believe. Our judgment is for purification purposes, not for condemnation. Our judgment leads to salvation. We are saved because Christ suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Purification comes through suffering, and this was seen first through Christ's suffering in his death. As we are purified with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And through sharing in his sufferings, we are purified. 
And so when it comes to us, this process of purification through suffering means that the genuineness of our faith is tested. And we can say that even through the various trials, we still believe that what Christ has done for us is enough. And even through the various trials, we can say we are not ashamed of the gospel. We rejoice and we glorify God, knowing that what he has done for us ensures our salvation. And so trust your souls to a faithful creator. Now, Peter sums it up all really well in verse 19. He says, we suffer according to God's will. And as we do, we entrust our souls to him as a faithful creator while doing good. Now, I come back to my question from the very beginning. What did it mean for the people to whom Peter was speaking to, who he was writing this letter to, to hold fast to the gospel while living on the margins of their society? And what's really fascinating is that after Emperor Nero died, he died in 68 AD, the persecution didn't stop. It kept going for these people. And after his death, there was a governor in the area of Bithynia. Now, remember, Bithynia is one of these areas that Peter's writing to. There was a governor there who was writing to another emperor in 100 AD. That's about 30 years after this letter was written. And he was writing to the emperor and asking him, how do I deal with these Christians? And this is what he writes about these Christians. They have been spread over cities and over fields and in the villages. He says that it has impacted every age group, every status of life, both male and female. The Christians to whom Peter wrote, they, despite their intense persecution and suffering, they took hold of the gospel and they stood firm. They believed the message they had heard and they believed what was written to them and they grew in number. The gospel spread over cities, over fields, in villages, in every age group, in every status of life, both male and female. They held fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They lived out these words found here. And they did not do it for their own glory, but for God's glory and for those around them. And they did it for our sake, so that we might be able to stand firm in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And when Christ returns, we will be able to rejoice with them and be glad when his glory is revealed. There will be witnesses because of them because of their spiritual sacrifices, the fact that they lived as people who were free, but they did not use their freedom to cover up for evil, but they lived as servants of God. They are part of God's church. They are part of God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that is the same church that we are part of today. And so to conclude, I just want to read Revelation 21, where it says, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is what we are ultimately looking forward to. Now, you might like to ask a question on slido.com using the hashtag HBSP. I will be back in about 90 seconds to answer some of the questions. Okay, I've got one question that's come through, and uh, it's from Steve. Uh, this is not Steve Carlisle. This is another Steve. Um, and the question, well, there's two questions now from Steve. Uh, the first question here asks, Matt, what does it mean that covers love covers a multitude of sins? That is a great question. Um, there's two answers that uh, I've sort of looked at in this um, and uh, so the first one is uh, the great fact that Christ's love for us, uh, basically, and he, therefore what he has done for us on the cross. So either Christ's love or God's love for us in sending his son to us so that uh, he might die to sin and live for righteousness. That there is one um, way that people explain that love covers a multitude of sins. So it's not necessarily... Uh, my love that covers sin. Uh, it's Christ's love that covers a multitude of sin. Uh, that's the first way that it's explained. The other is that through our relationships, through the way that we are being um, given gifts by God, that the way that we relate to each other in a loving way can actually be, be powerful in that it prevents us from sinning. It prevents us from doing 
the things that we have been to, we have been told not to do um, in our former ways. Um, it's it's kind of that idea found in chapter three, verse eight, that it says, "Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless." And so it's this idea that this loving uh, relationship that we have with each other, this unity of mind, is the way that we should be living, uh, and that actually prevents us or covers over a multitude of sin. So, uh, the next question, if suffering produces maturity, should we resist changes to the law that makes living as a Christian more difficult in Australia. Um, I just want to say, I don't believe that anywhere in the Bible uh, we get this idea that if we can make ourselves suffer some way, that we are going to be blessed because we've made ourselves suffer. It's just not... uh, what Peter is talking about. I think we have enough suffering as it is. I don't think we have to make more work for ourselves. Um, and so I think it's fine to stand up for what we believe. I believe it is definitely um, fine to look at the laws that are being made and uh, you know um, pursue those things that lead us to uh, live a good life, live a life that does not require suffering. But I think it's going to come anyway. So whether we do or not, we've got suffering to look forward to. Um, The next question, and I think this is a really good one. I'm going to finish with this one. Is suffering necessary if we want to be rid of sin in our lives? Uh, I do not believe that suffering is necessary for us to get rid of sin in our lives. I think it was suffering, it was necessary for Christ's suffering and it was necessary for his death on the cross to get rid of our sin. I don't think that we therefore have to suffer to get rid of our sin. I think that is something that will happen or could happen, but I don't think it's necessary. The necessary suffering is Christ's suffering on the cross from us for us. Uh, Thank you very much for your questions. I'm going to hand over to the band now as we sing. Thank you very much.